We're going to be returning to our journey through Exodus, which I have to say I'm a little uh, shocked and impressed that we began our study of Exodus in April and we're already in chapter 13 today. So I am, I am pretty amazed. This is the grace of God on display here. So you may not feel like you're charging ahead too fast, but you really are. All right, well, before I read, I'm going to read first this morning the passage from Exodus chapter 13. So if you're turning there with me, that's where we'll be this morning. But let me ask you to write down three words in your outline. If you're wondering, oh, we're supposed to write stuff down? Yes, that's why you have notes. And I will say this about notes. The most important thing that are going to be in those notes are going to be the things that you write down. The rest of it's just an outline and some white space for you to put some stuff in. So what God says to you is going to be much more important than anything else in those notes. But here's three words for you to write down. The word hope. Write down the word hope. Write down the word separation. And write down the word consecration. Hope, separation, and consecration. And if you're trying to remember, where are we in the book of Exodus? What's been going on here? Well, we are about to depart Egypt. So this is the last discipleship meeting in the land of Goshen for God's people. And it's very interesting to me what God chooses to cover on the day, really, you know, their day began with the evening. So when it says the day of your deliverance, this is an evening meeting that's going to give way to the next morning in which they will be up and on their way. But in this day, God had some specific teachings in mind for what we will call their last discipleship meeting in the land of Goshen before they depart. So let's start reading in Chapter 13, verse 1. Now, last week, we really kind of needed to do these together, but they were way too much to cover together. Last week, the same evening, same discipleship meeting, the topic covered was the Passover meal, right? Remember, very important and a lot of great details and symbolism and imagery that Evan reminded us of again today. So let's look in chapter 13 now. The evening continues. Verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses... Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord." Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. 
you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your sons ask you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt." Well, Lord, you have preserved these words, and God, as we read them, it is clear you were very intentional in having us rehearse these thoughts. You installed a feast. You installed a practice. You installed a moment of memorial where these things were to be called to mind. And, and Lord, there are things about you. There are things about us. There are things about your gospel purpose that are revealed in this practice. The God who delivers by a strong hand, because a strong hand of a living God is needed to deliver us from the things that are in this world. He is still at work. He is in our midst. He is our God. He still delivers God, help us to be reminded of what is still true, lessons that we have needed to hold on to, just as these people needed to hold on to them as well. So God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you speak to us through this word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Boy, there's so much here, uh, and just no way to unpack it all, or we would not be in Exodus chapter 13 at this point. We would still be in like chapter 2. Um, let, me, let me just get a plug going on here. This, this is a practice that at some point is going to go on and on and on and on and on and on and on for generations. And it assumes something in it that I want to poke at our young people about. So if you're about to go to sleep on me, young people, this is, at least remember this. This passage assumes you're going to ask questions to those who went before you. When your son asks you, what does this mean? All right, without raising a hand, young people, when was the last time you asked your parents or those in authority or those that have gone before you or the pastors or elders in your church, when was the last time you asked, help me understand what does that mean for me? 
Because listen, you are living in a world that's telling you something else is important. Something else is worth talking about. Something else is worth paying attention to. Something else needs to be in your feed or giving you a prompt. But God assumes that you're paying attention to what really matters in life. And you're going to ask the right questions to the right people. And so keep that in mind if you're a young person. That's, that's free. No, no charge for that one. All right, here, here we are. And this is an interesting thing for me because uh, this, this kind of bumps into me, this, this moment, this lesson, this, the content, the curriculum that's in this setting bumps into me because, you know, I, I, I think all the pastors think this way. We, we think what, does, what do God's people need? What kinds of things need to be taught at what moments? What have we been emphasizing? What have we been teaching? What group is this? Young group, new group, walking with Christ for many years. Is this leaders? What, what do we bring? Because the Bible doesn't, it, it, it consistently reveals God, but it doesn't say exactly the same stuff everywhere in it. It's got topics that it wants to bring up. And I find it kind of interesting here in this moment. <clears throat> this is sort of a discipleship bundle, if you will. You guys get those ads for like <clears throat> Cox Bundle. You, know, you get internet, TV. This is like a discipleship bundle. This is a meeting that's going to be had. And quite honestly, I'd, I'd get the impression that there haven't been a lot of meetings like this leading up to it, right? You're 430 years in Egypt. You've got no record of a prophet like Moses giving leadership to God's people through this time. And you've got a pretty good inference from the pattern of their lives that they've become very Egyptian in the way in which they see things. So when God brings all these plagues on the gods of Egypt, uh, part of that is to show the people of Egypt who God is, and part of that is to show the people of Israel who God is. Because for 430 years, they have lived in the shadow of Egyptian thinking and Egyptian ways. And what's good by way of what the Egyptians call good. And how did we get that in our lives? By way of what the Egyptians can explain. And, you know, the real litmus test is what are these people made of? These people that are in this meeting, what are these people made of? Well, remember, in just a few weeks, when they hit their, well, maybe not their first pothole, but Moses is going to go up on the mountain at Mount Sinai to visit with God and come back with some direction for God's people. And he's going to take a little bit too long. And after 40 days of him being gone, the people down at the foot of the mountain, the, the Israelites who came out of Egypt, they resort to turning to God. And how do they turn to him? By making a golden calf. They're going to worship a cow. Where did they get that idea from? 430 years in Egypt. So that's what's in these people. Now, why do I tell you all that? Because this is, a, this is a, a boatload of information that's about to be given to them on the evening before they're going to leave forever the land of Egypt. God wants to install some ideas here. So we have, we have the Passover meal that they learn about on this evening. Then we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread that we're going to learn about on this same evening. God, you're going to cover that material on the same evening as you did the Passover meal, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then the consecration of the firstborn is also going to get installed. And these are major themes in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of information 
that's going to be given to them in this moment. And quite honestly, I don't find this group to be a deeply theological community. Right? Now, now maybe that you're like, well, okay, Keith, so what? Well, you know, when I speak to an audience, I, you know, I, I assume I'm, I'm, I'm building on some things they already know. And if they don't know something, then I probably want to steer around that. Don't give them too much in a category that maybe I don't need to give them too much in, etc. God installs some serious theology and some serious practice in this meeting, a meeting in which they probably haven't had, like I said, a lot of meetings leading up to this. Yet God is going to give quite a bit of insight into what it means to be his people, to relate to him, and to live life for the glory of God. Right now, this is kind of an interesting question to ask an audience where there's people who have been saved for 30 years and people who have been saved for 30 days, maybe in the same room. But, you know, what insight and understanding was included in your first steps out of the land of Egypt and into the purpose of God? That's what's happening here. You've been living your life a certain way. Everything you know about life, how it's defined, how to do relationships, how to live life in a way that's correct, how to have an outlook, what to look to when life has needs in it. Everything like that has been trained from Egypt. And now God has said, out of Egypt and into my purpose. Well, that's the same thing that's happened to us, right? We, We lived in this world. We were convinced of ideas and people that are in this world taught us things, imparted things to us. And at some point, God said, Keith, come out of that world and come into my purpose in knowing me. So you and I have lived at this moment right here. What kind of insights did you have? And if you're new to, to Christ, what kind of insights are you living in right now? What kind of ideas are pressing themselves on you and bumping into the way you think, the way you live, the way you're going to do what's next, the stuff that you say no to that, no to that, yes to that? What, what's pressing on you right now? I, I know, you know, it's the information age and... I know, maybe we're more careful about what theology to give to people at what points than God is here. Because there's, there's, there's some challenging theology in this passage, right? right? I, I, I put in your outline, I think I called it a precarious pathway of discipleship. God joins together some precarious stuff. If you read the Bible for a while, there is, it, it's a little bit of a challenge to understand the sovereign grace of God and the activities that God has done on our behalf for our benefit Without our contribution, without us earning it, God shows up in this world and delivers stuff into certain people's lives just because he chooses to out of something in him. Not because he's waited for us and, you know, when you guys put in your 30 cents worth of a good life, I'll show up. It's 50 cents for that. I'll wait a little longer. You know, like, like God is waiting to be God because based on who we're going to be next. Our sovereign grace doesn't make God act that way. When God sovereignly by his grace determines to show up in our lives in a certain way, it's because in him is a motivation that he is satisfying. We have not earned it. We've not caused it to happen. So it's not based in human behavior. And listen, this is an important thing to get our minds around because we can start developing a theology that, that that makes God like a vending machine. It's, it's always God responding to the nickels that we put in. Even, even if those nickels are 
decent things to do, we still think we, we ratchet God up and get God to do. And there's so much about our lives that you cannot explain that way. The sending of Jesus Christ to the cross cannot be explained that way. There's nobody putting nickels in. And if you could put any nickels in, you don't have enough nickels to put in nickels for a perfect God to decide to sacrifice his perfect son on our behalf. You can't explain those kinds of actions except that they're just the sovereign grace of God. And if you're not careful, though, you read the Bible and you think, okay, well, then everything, everything in Scripture is just the sovereign grace of God. It's just God doing irrespective. We've got no part. Doesn't matter what we do. But then you've got here some elements of what God does that do make what we do important. And he communicates all that on the same night. Right? So when you look at that Passover meal that we just celebrated, that God is going to place a substitute lamb whose blood is going to satisfy his righteous requirement. God said all that. God decreed all that. And all we do is just believe him. And we believe him by putting the blood over the door. So we've just believed God. God did it. God said it. It will satisfy me. It looks forward to the day that Christ will come and restore us to God and forgive our sins. And his blood will wipe away our sins. That's sovereign grace. But then you've got, you've got, to, you've got to eat the meal a certain way. Remember all the instructions we looked at last week? There's a manner of how the meal is eaten. There's the feast of unleavened bread. And then there's the consecration of the firstborn. And every one of those are not what God does, but they are all what we do. And it all gets taught on the same night. It's like, God, seriously? These people, they're, they still think you're a cow. You're going to teach them about the sovereign grace of God and human responsibility all on the first night, right before they leave? Lord, who, who talked to you about curriculum here? I don't know. <laughs> but this is what God chooses to give to them on the day that they're going to depart and enter into. This first day, right? That's what God said. This month of Abib shall be a first, a new day for you. So this is the new day, and this is the, the discipleship meeting. So let's pull out some discipleship lessons <clears throat> from the Goshen Discipleship Bundle. How's that for a title, huh? Look first here at the manner of the meal. And you got to go back a little bit here to Exodus 12. God is telling them to eat this meal. I'm just going to go back and remind us of this real quickly. Verse 11. Well, if you back up a little bit, remember there's descriptions of you're going to roast the lamb. You're not going to boil it. Uh, don't eat it any other way. Roasted, verse 9, do not eat any of it raw or boiled. Roasted, verse 10, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn, right? So there's, you got to do something with the leftovers. There's herbs you're going to eat with this. Everything means something. Do it exactly this way. You know, don't, don't break the bones of the lamb. Roasted whole. Verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Right? Now, this is, this is not the invention of the drive-up window. I know it looks like it, but it, I don't think you can justify that from this passage. But you're on the move here. You're eating on the move. You are to eat this 
a certain way. You're to honor what God has said and hold on to the manner in which he said to eat it, prepare it, and you're to eat it with a certain attitude about you. So a couple of things I just want to pull out for us. This passage is particular, specific, detailed, in order to maintain certain imagery and meaning and remembrance. God has installed some specific ideas in this practice because for generations, he wants to make sure we remember this and this and this just this way. Now, without making a big deal out of this, there are a number of things that God reveals that are specific and detailed because as we move away from that event, those, those specifics point us back accurately to that event. And as history moves along, there's a great danger, and, and you need to be aware of this yourself, that, that you don't give yourself permission to make adjustments to God's words. Because later on, you'll find 20, 40, 60, 100, 300 years later, if you've given yourself permission to just tweak God's words a little bit, at some point, whatever you're doing will stop remembering what that thing was really about. Some of you grew up in denominations where you know exactly what I'm talking about. I grew up in a denomination where I I sat in church services week in and week out and week in and week out, and I, I didn't get it that Jesus Christ was sacrificed on my behalf to pay a penalty that didn't require me to add anything to it any longer. I thought I had to add stuff to it. Oh, I believe that Jesus did something pretty awesome, but I also believe that I needed to contribute to that. I needed to maintain. I needed to continue to do some good things to add. Now, listen, we're going to learn about doing some good things today. But I sat in church over and over and over and over and over again because the words had been tweaked and traditions had been added. And hundreds of years later, that thing stops remembering what this was about. So be very careful as you and I look at what God institutes that we don't give ourselves permission to tweak what he says because you could tweak it at the expense of losing what it was about. So this is an installation. God says you do it this way. The manner in which you do it matters. And then this is a a practice that this word haste is with it. You shall eat it in haste. Right? This, this is your posture. Your posture in engaging what God is doing right here is to be seated on the edge of your seat, ready to move. Right? I think this is, an, this is an important and incredible principle. God is moving here, right? Whether you've been 430 years in the same spot and you're not quite ready to go. You're not packed. You don't know where you're going. There's not enough answers being given. You don't know what to take. This is all we've ever known. All of my family grew up here. This is what I'm familiar with, but God is moving. That's not a time for you to ask a hundred questions and force God to answer all of them. Sit still, wait and wait and wait, because God is moving. And when God is moving, our response is to be a hasty response. It's to be to get on board with what God's doing. God's picking his people up and he's rescuing them out of their situation. Today, now, whether you planned on it or not, God is moving. And our posture is to be ready to move with God. 
And it's not to be a posture of delay, right? When God moves, we move. When God moves, listen, we do not, we do not delay. How many times did that passage that we just read highlight the fact that, that God was about to do something by his strong and mighty hand? There's a situation that exists here that these people, they're not fit for the task. They can't pull this off. As a matter of fact, they're going to have to advertise two or three times that it's going to take the strong and mighty hand of God not the strong and mighty hand of a few people, not Moses' strong and mighty hand, but the strong and mighty hand of God is going to have to be at work for this day to even exist, your day of deliverance, your day of freedom. You, you best not linger or delay or take your time when God is delivering you out of a setting. Philip Ryken his commentary says, they ate unleavened bread, which reminded them that when they escaped, they had to flee for their lives, right? You be ready to go here. You flee. You move on. And you know, what's interesting here is, is the, the word that takes place. This is a deliverance moment. This is a setting that's been controlling and domineering and influential and defining for these people that God is now calling on them to flee from that setting, to separate themselves from that setting, to be done with that, turn your back on it, move on from it, be ready to go when I move in your life. Now listen, God's showing up for people that have been idle and with idols for years and years and years, and God is saying, hey, but when I show up, you move with me. And we're moving now. And my, my strong hand is moving to separate you from what's been controlling your life all these years. You move with me. We're going now. And there's urgency in this moment. And there's something here that, I've got to be honest, I, I, I think it's a lost quality in the body of Christ today. Words like fleeing and separating and turning away and moving on, I, 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 I don't think that's highlighted in the Christian life like it used to be and like the Bible does and like it needs to be. I think there's a lot of people in this moment, this coming out of Egypt moment, where their, their walking with God doesn't have a flee element to it. It doesn't have this run for your life element to it. It doesn't have this separate yourself from that element to it. It's kind of got this quasi-casual, you know, a lot of stuff that's here is okay for me too. And yeah, I'll get to that. There's not an urgency to move on. If you were, if you were here and you were saved in the 70s or you were saved in the 80s, people got saved and then they, they, they did this radical separating and flee stuff. You know, they, they came out of Egypt and they, they took all of their Rolling Stones albums and burned them, you know, and uh, they, they took everything that, that was a part of that scene that represented that, and then, you know, they burned it or they got rid of it. And um, you guys, I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, if you, you, you stop even listening to that kind of music, right? Some of you guys are smiling, you remember this. Uh, 
you, you wouldn't have alcohol anywhere in association with your life at all. Just, you were just done with alcohol ever being a part of your life. And there'd be all kinds of stuff that was in this step that involved fleeing from this. Now, let me just say this carefully. I'm not saying the 70s and the 80s got it right in terms of prohibiting, because, you, know, you know, there's, there's, there's some challenges with, uh, you know, you can, you can read a book about Don Quixote, but you can't listen to a song about a man with no horse, you know. Um, all right, that's a little weird, right? I mean, this is not well thought out in some ways, but, but was, what was present was the idea that there's something from which you are being delivered out of. That word salvation meant something, right? I am being saved unto God. Right? If you want to understand salvation, that word is a huge word. I am, I am saved from God. A lot of people don't like that idea. But you're, you're saved from God more than you're saved from anything else because the righteousness of God would have consumed your life in judgment. So you're saved from God. You're saved to God, which is the greatest news any of us could ever live in in our lives and we're saved from the power and the dominance of Egypt from sin that wants to control and redefine us that's salvation all those things are salvation so there's a part of our salvation the same part that makes us run to God is going to make you run from something as well I don't see people running from things anymore Everything seems to be okay. Everything seems to be safe. It took a strong, mighty hand. Isn't that what it says? God's strong and mighty hand to get you separated from the things that controlled you in Egypt. It wasn't you. It wasn't a casual moment. It wasn't an easy moment. It took a strong, mighty hand of God to separate you from those things. Where are the people of God running from them? Putting them in our rearview mirror and getting away from them as fast as possible, running for our dear lives. I think I wrote this out in your outline. A response to the cross that does not include haste to be delivered from sin reveals a poor understanding of our salvation. Do we understand how oppressive and destructive and enslaving sin is? Seeing that is part of what gives us an awareness of this great salvation. Why is this salvation so great? Well, because it's given us God, and it's also liberated us from things that have controlled us and turned us into people that we can't stand and that want to own us forever. The person that sees the cross, right, I'm responding to the cross, I'm praying a sinner's prayer, whatever you call it. The person that sees the cross and yet lingers in sin still has a question to answer. What does this salvation mean to you? What it meant for these guys in Egypt was that this controlling, enslaving, bitter, afflicting, oppressive setting they were being delivered out of. 
and, and it's a picture. Please don't, please don't be looking to translate this into, well, you know, the next time I'm trapped in a desert with big pyramids, this will be a really helpful verse. The next time I've got some guy dressed with a big headdress and calling himself Pharaoh and, I don't know, controlling me with an army of chariots, this will be really helpful. Okay, that's not why this story is here. It's not looking for you and I to have those kind of similarities. But you and I do have pharaohs in our lives. You know, I do have settings like Egypt where there are things that control us and make our lives afflicted and bitter and difficult. There are addictions in our lives, like more than ever before. Here, here, here's this discipleship meeting, right? We've got a huddle going on here. We're packing up and moving out. Here's a couple of things I need you to know. Make haste. You're battling with an addiction? Make haste to get the hell away from that thing. Don't treat it casually. Don't keep one toe in it. Don't act like for some reason, well, you know, I, I smeared the blood over my door. So I guess the rest of this just, it'll just take care of itself, right? This is the same discipleship meeting where the living God says, yes, smear the blood over your door and then get the hell out of there. That's what the same God says. On the same night, he doesn't say, hey, listen, the blood thing, if you don't hear anything else I say, just make sure you hear me say the blood thing. Apparently he wanted you to hear this. Be postured for when you eat this meal and you remember what that blood thing means to you, that you hasten to get out of this land of Egypt, that it takes my strong and mighty hand to deliver you out of. Listen, I know there's all kinds of issues that sit with power in our lives. Right? You're here, maybe you're not in the addiction category. Maybe you don't have a, a drug or an alcohol or a pornography issue that's sitting in your life. But maybe you got like a, a fear and anxiety issue that sits in your life. And we have this weird tendency to pretty up some sins and ugly up other ones. Can I just tell you, if you've got a fear and anxiety issue that's sitting inside your life, controlling who you are, it visits you, I could almost say, exactly the same way that the drug addict battles with his battle. It visits you. It visits the people around you. It controls your outlook. It controls how you spend your time, how you talk about people, how you feel about yourself, and everybody who lives in proximity to you, where you've got things like anger or resentment or jealousy oozing out of your life and it's a dominating Egyptian-sized event for you. Listen, your life has the same qualities to it as the drug addict who figures out every day how to get high and how to manage his getting high and who to steal from in order to get high. See, it just doesn't have the same descriptions that drug addict who's off in his own land, you know, planning his own life, hurting you at the same time, is not too much different than the fear and anxiety person who's off in their own land, all abuzz with this situation, controlled by it, and hurting you in a different way at the same time. And God steps in and says, I want you out of there. I've come with a strong hand to take you out of Egypt. 
get dressed, be ready to go now. These were for people taking their first steps. Just really, there's some really pretty sins that we don't mind doing this to, like self-pity. And you guys got some self-pity issues. If you're born anywhere near the, this generation that we're living in, that's where entitlement and self-pity all come together, right? Right, that, that somebody owes me something. What is that? Well, it's, it's self-pity. Everybody's been doing me wrong. Keith, you, know, you don't understand. Everybody's been doing me wrong. What do you want me to say to that? Besides, welcome to the planet. <laughs> now, how can, you, how can you read your Bible? I'm not trying to be too obnoxious here, because I know some people that have been really on the receiving end of some pretty bad stuff. But you know, you don't get but three chapters into the Bible before the Bible sticks this big giant sign up and says, from now on, broken, Broken, broken. It's broken now. Everything's broken. The world is broken. Relationships are broken. People are broken. Broken. It screams at you, broken. It screams so loud that it's broken that the Son of God is going to have to become a man. And he's going to have to die in order to fix it. This is not like a repairman can come fix this thing. It's broken. And so self-pity it's like, well, I can't stand the fact that broken people responded to me in a broken way. I, listen, I'm mocking that because there's a lot of us that have had a little bit done wrong to us. But everybody's done me wrong. There's some people who live, you live your life adversarially toward everyone. Everyone around you at some point becomes your enemy or somebody who did you wrong. What is that? It's a giant dose of self-pity. That's a pretty sin, though. That's not a drug addict sin. It's still a sin, and it's a powerful sin. And it took God coming to Egypt and saying, no more. Get dressed. Be prepared to go with me. We're moving now, and you're moving out of that. And we're moving on. That's what's happening in this passage. Here, take a lesson here from the next Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'm going to take too long. I'm getting stuck here. Feast of Unleavened Bread. Look in verse 6, chapter 13. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. Right? What was, what was leavened bread? What was bread with yeast in it? Right? This is the leaven had to do with yeast. You know, if you guys bake anything, you know, yeast has got a little bit of a process to it. You don't get instant stuff, right? It's got to get some warmth to it. It's got to spread. It's got to make your dough kind of get fluffier and thicker, and then you can bake it, and then it's got that nice you know, consistency to it. Well, if you pull the yeast out of it, you know, you know, kind of almost you're making like crackers. I mean, it just doesn't turn into nice fluffy bread. So this is a, a picture of removing yeast from bread and then eating what you got there instead, right? But it's an interesting passage. This is, this is a discipleship meeting on our way out and on our way into God's purpose. 
celebrate the Passover, and install the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This practice that for the next seven days you are going to intentionally remove every bit of yeast that's anywhere to be found in your land. And you're going to live your life with that stuff out of the picture. That's what's being installed here. Oh, and by the way, remember this. Do this ceremony over and over and over and over and over again because I want you to remember something from it. Philip Ryken says, Unleavened Bread reminded the Israelites of their hasty departure. But getting rid of the yeast had another purpose. Jewish teachers have always understood yeast to represent the corrupting power of sin. Unleavened bread symbolizes holiness. What makes this comparison suitable is that unleavened bread is made of pure wheat untouched by yeast. When God's people ate unleavened bread, therefore, they were reminded to keep themselves pure from sin, and especially from the evils of Egypt. This symbolic act shows that they have a commitment to lead a life free from sin. Yeast is an appropriate symbol for sin because of the way it grows and spreads. As yeast ferments, it works its way all through the dough. Sin works the same way. Sin is always trying to extend its corrupting influence through a person's entire life. Question. Do you wake up every day informed by that reality? Sin is like yeast. It is always at work seeking to work its way through the entire lump of dough. The Apostle Paul is going to say that in just a second when we look at it. It's what yeast does. So a little bit, you know, what they would do is they would make a batch of dough. And they would take a little piece of that batch of dough and they'd cut it off and they'd save it. And then they'd bake all their bread. And then, you know, a day or two later when they wanted to make some more, they would, they would take this little piece of yeast that they preserved from the previous batch. And they would roll it up into the new dough. And then just let it sit. And eventually, that little lump, that little piece that they saved, would spread itself throughout the entire lump. And then they could bake bread again. And they'd lop off a little piece and they'd save it again. This is exactly what God didn't want them to do coming out of Egypt. Do not save a little piece of Egypt with you. Do not take a little piece of Egyptian yeast with you. It will leaven your whole life. That's, that's the nature of of sin. So the lesson here in this feast of unleavened bread is a wise lesson for you and I, I, you know, somewhere along the way we've put these festivals down, we've lost this imagery, and we've thought we can take a little piece of sin into our world, and, and, and what do you think it's going to do in your world? Well, I'm going to tell it to sit right there in that chair, and I'll only let it out on Saturday. Okay. All right, where'd you get that idea, by the way? Because that's not the way yeast behaves. It doesn't care what day it is. It doesn't care what your plans are for it. It's going to work its way through the entire lump. That's the nature of yeast. And it's the nature of sin. So if we decide we're going to be casual about sin, that doesn't mean sin will be casual about its task. It will still do exactly what sin does. Reichen goes on and says, sin is 
always, I'm sorry, but God had something better in mind for his people. He was saving them to sanctify them. So before they left Egypt, he wanted them to make a clean sweep. The last thing God wanted them to do was to take a lump of dough from Egypt that would eventually fill them with the leaven of idolatry. Instead, he wanted them to leave behind all of Egypt's gods and goddesses, the old life of sin. So here in this one night of discipleship, there is God's sovereign grace represented with blood being applied from a substitute that these people had no contribution to. And then in the same meeting, God moves on to clean up your act, get the sin out of your life. And God seems to have no problem teaching human responsibility in the same sentence with divine sovereignty. And he's not concerned that, well, are they going to be confused? I think we're confused in some of this stuff because we want to be confused. I don't, I don't know if I get all that. All right, well, can, can it be real simple? Just don't, don't do the sin thing. How's that, right? I mean, that's pretty simple. Sin's bad. It's like yeast. It infects your whole life. How about stop? Well, I don't know if I get that because you say stop right when you tell me about God's sovereign grace. And yeah, that's what the Bible just did. And it still expects you to stop. Isn't that weird? <laughs> I mean, theologically, we don't need to be confused by this. The Apostle Paul, you know, in the richness of the New Testament, 25 years after Jesus has been the sacrificial lamb, reaches back to this same night and gives the same lesson, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Sovereign grace. God sent his son to do what we didn't deserve him to do, that we didn't put enough nickels in for him to do. God sovereignly chose to send his son. He has been sacrificed. Let us, verse 8, therefore, celebrate the festival Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. All in the same sentence. You have the sovereign activity of God, and then you have the responsible activity of man. Cleanse out, and let us therefore celebrate appropriately. It matters how we live. All in the same night, God spoke this to his people. Apparently, God doesn't think these two things are confusing. I think you and I use that confusion as a license for things that God thinks are clear. Right? These are big lessons. And whether it was in the day of Egypt or in Paul's day or today, right, we, we are in danger. This is a real warning in, the first, in, the, in 1 Corinthians. We are in real danger of old leaven leavening the lump. Okay, this is not the Apostle Paul speaking about something that could never happen, that couldn't really happen, because Christ our Passover lamb has already been, and you're not really leavened, so just forget everything I just said. He doesn't say that. He said, as a means of what God has done in your life, the lamb has been sacrificed, and you are now cleansed. You're no longer what you used to be. So therefore, clean out. The old leaven. He doesn't act as though, well, now because you're no longer what you used to be, you don't even have to worry about any old leaven because there really isn't any old leaven because you're new leaven now. He doesn't have that conversation with us. 
He says, you are a new creature. Now clean out the old stuff and don't let it continue in your life. And that seems to make sense. It makes sense in Exodus and it seems to make sense to Paul. So these, these are not at odds with each other. And then there's one more thing in this passage. Back to chapter 13. Same night, one more thing is going to get installed here. And there's some lessons in redemption here that we'll need to revisit. Chapter 1, I mean chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. All right, so you, you've got this illustration now. You've had, a, you've had an illustration, okay, we, by the sovereign grace of God, you have become God's people. There is mercy for you because of the blood of the lamb. You are now my people. Put away this, right? So do away with what's clearly evil, all the idolatry, all the, the malice and the evil. Do away with that, unleavened bread, right? Get the yeast out. And then as you move forward, now this, this is going to touch something different in our lives. And this is, boy, a lot of us drop the ball here. Because it's real easy to know I'm not supposed to do the bad stuff. All right, now my question is, what are you supposed to do with the good stuff? Because this is a passage about good stuff. These are not bad things that are in this passage. The firstborns, those aren't bad things. The first of increase, that's not a bad thing. Those are good things. These are things we're supposed to have in our life. But I think I wrote this in your outline. We need to be protected from the good things that are supposed to be in our lives, as well as the obviously corrupt things that are not. Boy, this is a, this is a slice of the bread that, that some of us just don't put on the sandwich. We come to Christ, we know certain things are bad. Let's get rid of the bad things. What are you going to do with the good things that are in your life? Like your children, your spouse, your money, your talent, your ability to achieve success, the power that your position affords you. Right? Don't, don't go labeling those things bad things. I didn't, I didn't say a bad thing yet. Hey, listen, it's the love of money that's the problem. It's not money in your life that's the problem. There are many, many people that God wants in this world to have power over situations and circumstances and people. So God gives you power. What are you going to do with it? God gives you success. God gives you a spouse. That's a good thing. God gives you children. That's a good thing. But good things need to be consecrated to God in order to protect us from them slipping into an idolatry category. Remember, we are wired for worship. To look towards something or someone to be our God. We are wired that way. You and I are created to find something outside of us to be our provider, our protector, our love, our source of affection and care and support. We are wired for that. So if we don't find that in God, there's going to be a great deal of temptation to find it elsewhere, like in good places, like our children or like our spouse or our job or our money or our ability to be successful or the power that we have over people and circumstances. We will turn those things into God. And God knew that. And so in the same discipleship meeting, 
and the sovereign grace, blood of Christ spread upon your door. Separate yourself from that. Oh, and, and when you go to do life in this direction with me, consecrate. Consecrate these things that are in your life. This is, this is an interesting word, this word consecrate. It's all throughout Scripture. It's an activity for the people of God. This word, you can put this in your outline, this word and this concept are critically important to every creature that God has created. Before anything is ours, it is first Yahweh's. This principle of first thing first keeps our lives from the ditches of self-sufficiency and idolatry. When I get things in my life that I think came from me, I'm the source, then I I fight and wrestle with self-sufficiency. My ability to keep producing this, my ability to be successful, or my pride that I am so good at this. Or idolatry. I begin to look to these things as my source of my hope. And God has installed something here that rescues me. This word consecration, it's it's God saying, take this thing that I give you in your life, this good thing that I, I want you to have it in your life. And before you do anything with it, you give it back to me. And you recognize it's mine. You guys see that word in your, is that in there? Doesn't that sound a little bratty? I, mean, I know, come on. Some of y'all want to take God to court. You want to take a ruler out, slap his hand, do something in this moment. Because you got a God who's standing around saying, mine, mine, mine. Do you, do you know this, that God owns the copyright on that word? And when you read here, and I'm just going to read a few passages here together, you're going to realize, I don't know if it's ever appropriate for us to use that word. God says everything is mine. Yeah, but I've got this in my life and this in my life and this in my life. And God turns and says, yeah, and they're all mine. If I recognize the stuff in my life isn't mine, it makes me treat it differently. If I see who's it, who it belongs to, I have a different attitude about it, right? And this is, this is throughout Scripture. I'll just give you this real quick. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits." Of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This word first fruits, it's actually connected to the festival of first fruits in Scripture, which was, was a day that actually arrived on the day that is Easter that we celebrate, the Sunday. It is an interesting practice. Ligonier wrote a little article on it that's very helpful, full of rich imagery here. It says, at this festival... The Israelites offered the very first sheaf of the harvest and were not allowed to eat anything from the crop until they gave its initial portion to the Lord. This required a great deal of faith on the part of the Israelites as they would be giving the offering of first fruits at a time when not much was ready to be harvested. They had to trust God that he would indeed provide the fullness of grain that they had yet to come forth. Something that from a human perspective was far from certain given the people's utter dependence on the right amount of rainfall and so forth to give the best crop. 
right? So you've, you're a farmer, you've planted, and you've waited. So you've got that season of life where you've harvested a while ago. You've been banking on that and living off of it. Time has gone by. You've kind of messed with the ground again, planted some more things, waited, waited, waited. It starts to shoot up. It finally starts to produce fruit, which is what you're after. And there's a little bit coming now. It's been a while since you've harvested, by the way. Payday has been a while. This is the end of the month. And you finally get paid again a little bit. And God says, give it to me first. (laughs) God, do you have any idea how lean it is? It's been a while and the last harvest wasn't that big anyway. And we've been running out for a long time. So I'm sure you'd understand that we might give you some later after we've kind of paid some of our bills with this. And, and, you know, God, who knows? I don't even know what's going to happen here because the harvest is is still weeks away. Weeks away. A lot could happen. I mean, hailstorm, locusts could come. We could get no rain and the rest of it's not going to come in. So certainly, God, you'd want this to meet my needs first before I give this to you. And that's not the festival. The festival is God saying, the last thing in the world I want for you is you look into those stinking crops to be your provider. So you take what you think would give you hope and you transfer it to me and then you trust me to provide for you in the future. That's the festival of first fruits. It's also what God is installing right here for these guys. Exodus chapter 22, verse 29. Later on, we're going to hear God say, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. You shall not delay. Where did we lose this? Don't delay. The first fruits begin to emerge. Don't delay. Give it to God first before you get tempted to do anything else with it. Honor God. Make a statement in your own heart and for the rest of your soul that you are looking to God but this is all I've got. No, 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 no. You've got God. And you will always have God. That little harvest thing you're pulling out of the ground right now, you start making that your hope, that will be all you've got. And you will live a miserable life. Genesis 14, those of you who want to try to bring the law into this conversation, Genesis 14, verse 18, this is going to cut your legs out from underneath you, warning. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, landlord, owner. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. God did this for you, Abram. The battle you just fought against these kings... And all the wealth that came into your life as a result of beating them, God gave that to you, Abram. You know how Abram, we can tell Abraham believes that? Because it says in the next words. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Why did he do that? Well, because the landlord sent his representative to him. Melchizedek, priest of God Most High, shows up and says, Wow, looks like God's been really good to you. Look at all that God's provided. You know, you know, God, the possessor of heaven and earth, the owner of everything. Mine, God says. 
Now, everybody here is smart enough to know God's not standing around saying mine because he's cheap and desperate, right? Mine. How the heck am I going to pay my bills, Abram, unless you fork over 10%? I've got responsibilities, man. That's not God. God doesn't need Abram's 10%. Abram needs to give that 10% to God. He desperately needs it. And when they're coming out of Egypt, that's what God's installing in their lives. You take the first of everything I give to you and you give it back to me before you do anything with living your life. Otherwise, you will lose me in the process. We've lost some very important imagery in our lives. We tend to see our lives as owners. We think we're owners, right? We're a homeowner, we're a car owner, we're a business owner, we're owners, right? If you're an owner, you have license to use the word mine, right? If you own it, it's mine. But God sees us as stewards and himself as Lord, which gives him the right to use the word mine. It's a little different. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He is the creator Everything that exists, God created. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. You're just going to be my treasured possession. I own it all. But you're going to be the treasured part of all that I own. That's what God's saying. Now, here's, a, here's a great response here. Right? First Chronicles chapter 29 reverses this. This is man not speaking the word mind. This is man recognizing who owns everything, and it's, it's King David. At the dedication of the temple, King David talks about what, the offering for it. He talks about what's been able to be given to God for his purpose. He says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. And who am I? What is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you. And of your own have we given you. We gave back to you what you gave to us. It's not ours. It's yours. It's always been yours. And we just put it back in your hands. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there's no abiding. Oh Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. So how many of us as God's people, if we start tithing or giving sacrificially to something that God's doing or sacrificing our time and service somehow for the kingdom of God, we, we start feeling like God owes us. 
God needs to make my life go smooth. I've been doing this and this and this and this. Why isn't everything going smooth, right? It's almost as though we think we have been giving to God of what was ours, and he needs to now respond to that. Everything that's in our lives is his. Whatever check he wrote this morning was his before you wrote it. It's just a matter of whether or not in your heart you have consecrated these things to God and made them his. See, Eric, why don't you go ahead and come, buddy. Um, listen, we can get into a real bad spot when that word mine is being used in our lives wrong. In this passage, right, you see this in this passage, God says, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Why does he say do that? Why does he say it in that passage? Because they're mine. That's why. Now, let me just tell you, because I use this other verse intentionally. In Proverbs chapter 3, God says, honor the Lord from your wealth and from your first fruits. Then your barns will be bursting and your vats will be full of, new, full of wine. Right, so there is this reward element that God says, if you keep me in the right place in your life, there's a goodness that will come into your life. There's provision and there's blessing. And there's promises all throughout Scripture. But let me just warn you about something. You live in a land that this is, this is how God is being presented to you. If you tune in, do a podcast, nobody listens to radio anymore, but whatever it is that you're doing to get preaching into your soul, this is what this is sounding like today. Here's why you put God first. Here's why you give an offering. Here's why you tithe so that you can have your best life. You can have this. And you, can, you can be the head and not the tail. You, you guys heard these phrases, right? You tuned into some of those broadcasts? And, and, and partially that's in the Bible. But here, I'd like to get all those folks in a room together and just, you know, beat them with a stick, I think. But how irresponsible this is. See, because when you tell me I can have my best life now, when you tell me that, how many of you guys know I've already got a definition for what I think best is? So what you just told me is I can have whatever is best. You know, I just got saved yesterday. I'm a drug dealer. And, you know, hey, whatever is best, you know, some more money, it's great. I can trust God and I give and I write a tithe check. And God's going to bring so much money into my life, it's going to be unbelievable. Really, that's, that's your definition of the best life you can have. And, and you learn that where? Well, I was in Egypt. <laughs> You learn to treasure and love things that provide for people who don't have God. And to treat those things like they're critical and life-giving and necessary. And so if I write a check to God, God will give me those things. God will fill my life with God substitutes if I'll just do this. Right? Is that what you're telling me? No, God says. That's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you, you give me your first because they're mine. And the day you start treating this creation like it's yours and not mine, everything's going to go bad in your life and between us and in this world. This is how you get order in your life. You treat everything like it's mine. And I've just allowed you to be a steward of my stuff in your life. 
Listen, let me, let me, let me get us to battle through this. This is, this is the Goshen discipleship lesson. You guys get this? This is not like, oh, Keith, that's such advanced teaching for people who have been saved for 30 years and finally they need to hear that. These people are about to take their first step into a liberated life. God says, let's cover these things. My sovereign grace, you put your hope there. Right? Remember that word I told you to write down in the beginning? You put your hope in the blood of the Lamb. Do not put your hope in your consecration. Do not put your hope in separating yourself from your sin. You put your hope in the blood of the Lamb. Put the blood on your door, and you and I are going to be right. And then separate yourself from things that are sinful. Put them aside. Flee from them. Leave them in Egypt. Be done with them. And then consecrate everything that's in your life that's good. And you give it to me first before you make use of it. You make sure in your heart it's mine and you're just using it. Discipleship meeting number one. This isn't over anybody's head. And all of us, all of us get blessed and rescued by this. This this is so helpful. Listen, if you're here this morning, you had a hard time. I mean, I'll be real with you. You had a hard time when the offering comes around because that's that part of you that, oh, man, you know, I don't know. It's hard for me to give. We've got a lot of bills. We're at the end of the month, et cetera. And, you know, I don't even know what these people do with all that money anyway. All right, listen, I, I can't fix all that. There's too many quirky weirdos on TV and there's too much bizarre stuff and somebody has done something wrong with it and I get you got more month left. I get all that. I'm just telling you, this passage says, God stands before you and says, it's mine. Are you treating your money like it's yours or are you treating it like it's God's? Well, if I start treating it like it's God's, I'd end up having to part with some of it and trust him. Exactly. When did we get the idea that God was interested in us drawing our security and our comfort from a pile of money or from our ability to produce this? There's a bunch of men in this room. I'm going to tell you why something. There's a bunch of men in this room who both celebrate and are tortured by their success because they feel the weight of providing for their families. And when they do well, they can celebrate it, but in the back of their mind, there's a, there's a standing fear that what if I lose this job? What if I end up like so-and-so over there? I go into the hospital and I'm injured and I can't keep doing this. How am I going to provide? How am I going to provide? I don't know too many men that that's not a reality that they live in. The struggle to believe they will be able to provide for the people they love. You know what rescues you from that? Trusting God. Looking to God. This is what God does. Hey, before we wander out of Egypt here, guys, let's make sure you got this right. Look to me. Take the first of everything I bring into your life and give it back to me to teach your soul to look to me. Otherwise, you're going to live in torment in your life. This is gracious of God to do this for us. But as we pray in just a moment, right, you may... Do not transfer your hope into some category that you do. Do you get this? I did this on purpose. Don't don't put your hope 
in you separating yourself from your sin or you consecrating the good things in your life. Your hope is in the blood of the lamb. Leave it there. What Christ has done for you that you could never do for yourself is where your hope lies. But now as you go to live, there are some things in some lives here. I hope you're, I hope you're soberly facing this. Are there some things in your life that God is saying, flee that. Be done with that. Turn your back on that. It takes my strong right hand to liberate you from that. And you stay one more day, it's going to be like leaven that's going to spread throughout your life and own your world. Listen, if you're aware that there's leaven in your life like that this morning, you need to flee that. Look, where we got the idea that you're safe to come in here week after week after week and hold on to that thing. Make a decision about whether you're going to flee that or not. God calls you to do it. And then listen for God to tell you whether or not the good things in your life have become idols for you. They're not God's. They're yours. You own them. And unfortunately, you can tell you own them because they own you. And don't feel real happy right now, does it? See, this morning, you, you can give that back to God, too. You can trust him this morning. All right, let's stand up together. Father, we are here this morning, a treasured possession. That's what you called your people. You will be a treasured possession for me. God, we are here this morning as your treasured possession because the blood of the lamb was spilt for us. And Lord, by faith, we have believed that and we have received the good of being your people because of all that Christ has done for us that cannot be added to and it cannot be taken away. So Lord, our hope this morning is because of what you have done and will continue to do on our behalf. And Lord, when you invited the people to be your people, when you called them out, Lord, you also called on them to separate and to consecrate. And God, we want to do that this morning. We want to heed your wise counsel and learn from these lessons. So God, I pray for us as a people. Lord, there are some here this morning that they have heard again this morning to flee separate yourselves from that which is corrupt the yeast that you have picked up from this world the way of practicing and thinking and pursuing life that is sinful God this morning says to flee from it God would you give our hearts over to separating our lives from these things Lord, for those that are here this morning living with the struggles of idolatry, the good things you've given us, uh, God, open our eyes to how we have turned a spouse into a source, an idol, how we have promoted our children from just being our children to being life givers to us. Lord, rescue us this morning from the success that you've given us in our lives, Lord, that the the increase of our crops, the, the largeness of our business, the blessing on our company. Lord, whatever it is, God, have we kept that as yours 
or if we turned it into ours. Lord, this morning, would you adjust us in these places, Lord? Would you let us give to you and entrust to you what is yours and help us merely to be stewards of what you have placed in our lives, God? These are rich lessons, Lord, important lessons. We take them with us today as we flee Egypt and run toward you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Thank you.